Today, what we're going to look at is the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 4, verses 11, and I'll read it all the way to chapter 5, verse 10. This is the word of the Lord. Since then, we have a, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Let me, uh, let me pray for us and we'll get started. Uh, God, we thank you for your word. Uh, and it is a precious word. And even the, the part that I accidentally read uh, speak so highly of your word that it truly is a double-edged sword. And we do ask God that it would pierce our hearts, but when we think of piercing, maybe we think of uh, uh, something uh, uh, negative and violent, but we ask that it would pierce our hearts uh, in a way that heals, uh, in a way that uh, brings restoration to our spirits and to our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week we looked at a passage, and uh, in that passage, Jesus talks about his very heart, and he offers an invitation to those who are weary and, and heavy laden to come to him, and the reason he gives is, he says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and what I thought we would do for the next couple of weeks is reflect upon the heart of Jesus, and what we said last week is, you know, of all the ways that Jesus could have described his very own heart, uh, the way he chooses to reveal himself or to reveal his heart to us is he says he is gentle and lowly in heart. And of course, that is not to say that Jesus is soft on sin or doesn't take sin seriously because of course he does, but really to emphasize Jesus's open invitation to those uh, who are discouraged, to those who are frustrated, to those who are weary, to those uh, who are disenchanted, to those who are cynical, to those who feel empty. Jesus is offering this invitation and saying, come to me. And so while this is a season that we, are, uh, that we focus on Jesus' coming to us through the incarnation, uh, one thing I hope that we can also remember is that he wants us to come to him and we should feel free to come to him and to receive the gifts that he has to give us. Now today we're going to look at uh, another passage that reminds us of the heart of Christ. And I mentioned that uh, a lot of these sermons are going to draw from a, a book that I read during my sabbatical called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. And if you are looking for devotional material, it's a, it's a book I would recommend. But uh, in that book, he talks about a Puritan writer named Thomas Goodwin. 
And Thomas Goodwin wrote a book called The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. And as Goodwin is trying to describe the heart of Christ, he uses a passage uh, to anchor his book in, and that passage is actually the very passage we looked at today. And here's what he says about this passage. He says, I have chosen this text as that which above any other speaks his heart most and sets out the frame and workings of it towards sinners, and that so sensibly that it does, as it were, take our hands lay them upon Christ's breast, and let us feel how his heart beats and his affections yearn toward us. Even now he is in glory, the very scope of these words being manifestly to encourage believers against all that may discourage them from the consideration of Christ's heart toward them now in heaven. Now, I will say this about the Puritans. Their sentences are way too long, uh, but they were masters at illustration. And I just love that image uh, because... Uh, when we are going through hardship, when we are feeling discouraged, when we are weary, when we are frustrated, usually what that means for us is we are not at our best, right? Uh, maybe there's exceptions, but uh, I imagine for most of us, our worst side tends to come out during those moments. And when our worst sides come out, you know, maybe we start to feel a little bit bad and we start to distance ourselves from God on account of our sense of uh, guilt or our sense of shame. And that's the, the subtle danger of something like discouragement or weariness because it's not as though we are necessarily rejecting God outright, but maybe we are slightly more hesitant to come to him. And when we don't come to him, inevitably what we do is we cut ourselves off from his peace, from his rest, from his strength, and all the other spiritual benefits that come out of his grace. And so when Goodwin is saying, uh, or what he is saying is that this text, right, figuratively takes our hands, lays them upon Christ's breasts, gives us a sense of how Jesus' heart beats for us in the moments where we are not at our best. And that should encourage us uh, to answer his call, to answer his invitation, and to come to him. Now verse 2, it, it says it very explicitly. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Now, you should know the he that it's talking about is actually the high priest, and so it's not directly or even exclusively uh, referring to Jesus, but it actually is talking about Jesus indirectly because the entire argument is saying that Jesus is our high priest, and therefore he is better than the ones uh, under the old covenant. And so by implication, I think we could say Jesus deals gently and ignorant with the wayward uh, as well. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, and in, uh, you know, the book of Hebrews is very rich and deep in theology, so there's a lot in here. Uh, but we're going to make this verse our target, and we're going to look at some of the themes that, that surround uh, this verse that will give us insight as to why Jesus can deal gently with us. There's two exhortations in this passage. The first one is this in, in verse 4. Let us hold fast our confession. And the second exhortation is, uh, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That first exhortation has to do with uh, persevering in our faith, right? Hold fast to that confession. The second exhortation has to do with movement. We should move towards Jesus 
and his throne of grace. The second exhortation is another reminder of that invitation that we are being invited to draw near to him. Now, if we were to hear these exhortations and ask, well, why, why should we do that? How can we do that? How can we persevere in our faith? How can we move towards this throne of grace? Uh, what, would, what answer would be given? Well, the answer is we can do that because Jesus is our great high priest. And there are two reasons why Jesus is our great high priest or a better high priest than those of the Old Testament. The first reason is this. Jesus was tempted, but he was without sin. And the second reason is Jesus was a son, and yet he suffered. So we'll look at those two things, and that'll be our sermon today. Uh, first, Jesus was tempted, yet without sin. You know, one of the central doctrines in uh, the Christian faith is a doctrine of the incarnation, which is basically what we're celebrating here uh, during the Christmas season, when Jesus came down and took uh, human nature, took the form of human nature. And some doctrines can, you know, feel a little bit cold or abstract to us because maybe uh, we don't understand it or because we haven't really unpacked it or meditated upon it. But you know, the doctrine of the incarnation should not be one of those doctrines because, uh, you know, you just picture Christmas and... I don't, I don't know if anybody here has a fireplace. I'm, I doubt anybody here has a fireplace, but if you think about Christmas and you think about this warm fireplace, uh, I think that would be a very appropriate image uh, to tie to Christmas because the incarnation should be one of the warmest doctrines based on the implications of what it means in terms of our relationship with Jesus. Those implications are spelled out in chapter 4, verse 15, when it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, the fact that Jesus is one who can sympathize with our weaknesses, that is really remarkable to think about. Just think about Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses. You know, why is sympathy so important, and uh, what does sympathy do? Uh, I want you to imagine, you know, what if one day you had just like a really, really hard day at work, and you go home, and you want to tell your spouse about it, and so you say to your spouse, ma'am, I had a rough day today, my boss has been treating me so poorly, tried to humiliate me on numerous occasions, trying to ruin my reputation with my other colleagues, and uh, what if you share all that and then your spouse looks at you very deadpan and says, so what? <laughs> that happens to me every day. Uh, you just need thicker skin. Now raise your hand if your spouse said, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Jen, put your hand up. No, I'm just <laughs> right, now, uh, what does a response like that say? Right? It, it says... You know, you, the pain and the frustration that you're, you're going through, that you're feeling, is not real. And uh, if you feel pain and frustration, it means maybe something is wrong with you. And ultimately, it's a response that casts judgment upon you, right? Because either it says you're not really good at your job or you can't handle the demands of your job. And what does that ultimately do to a relationship? I think it creates relational distance because the person who had a hard time at work is thinking, oh man, this, this person doesn't understand me. Or this, uh, this person isn't there for me in my time of need. Or this person just doesn't think I'm worthy or good enough. And why would you draw near to somebody 
who has no sympathy, right? On the other hand, what if your spouse responded like this and said, oh man, that's, that's really tough. I'm sorry, uh, that's the kind of day you had. You know, I've, I've been there. I've been there when a boss has been really nasty to me and you know, I know how much it sucks the joy out of your work. Right? I know that dread of having to uh, wake up and go to work the next day. I know that paranoia that you have when people are kind of talking and whispering around you and that, that anxiety that you feel. Right? What if someone responded like that? I imagine most of us would prefer that response as to the first response because it's filled with sympathy, right? Sympathy is, is a strange thing in that it doesn't really change the, the circumstances. It doesn't really change the situation or the practical outcome, but it makes you feel better. And more importantly, it strengthens the relationship, right? Why? Well, I think one of the reasons is it creates a sense of solidarity with another person. That relational connection with another person who sympathizes and makes you feel as though that person is in it with you. Now think about that in relation to Jesus. Think about that in relation to the fact that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weakness in view of the incarnation. When it comes to Jesus, he could very well have responded to our weakness and said, well, come on, I, I still expect you to be strong. Uh, you should still maintain uh, the standard that God's law sets out for you, even though you're living through pandemic, right? He could have said, you fell into temptation again. Is it, is it really that hard to be more patient? Is it really that hard to be a little bit more selfless? Come on, get it together, right? We could have a Jesus like that, and maybe some of us conceive of Jesus in that way, but that's not what the passage tells us about who Jesus is. This passage tells us Jesus sympathizes with our weakness. In our struggle, he doesn't respond in a cold-hearted fashion because his heart is not to drive us away from him. He responds with sympathy, and I would also add gentleness, so as to draw us closer to him that we might receive grace in our time of need. Second, Jesus is a son, but he suffered, okay? That's why he's a better high priest. Jesus is a son, but he suffered. Now, Jesus is different because he wasn't simply uh, a prophet or an, another one of God's servants, but uh, in terms of his status, he was God's son. According to chapter 5-2, it says, every high priest chosen from among men can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. But, you know, because the high priest is beset with weakness, every high priest is every obligated to offer sacrifice uh, for his own sins as well as the sins of the people. And what this is pointing out is that at the end of the day, every high priest was imperfect under the old covenant. Uh, they imperfectly acted on behalf of men in relation to God because they themselves were imperfect. It would kind of be like an attorney on trial for a crime representing another person on trial for a crime at the same time. It's, uh, there's something off about that. It's an imperfect system. The only way to make things right in this system is to have a clean attorney who is not guilty of committing a crime. And Jesus fills that role as the perfect high priest. But even it says here, Jesus didn't exalt himself to be made a high priest. He was appointed to it. The Father appointed the Son 
to be a high priest in order to act on behalf of men in relation to God. And there is something special about being a high priest who is also a son in the way that he can act on behalf of us in relation to God. You know, as a son, not only is he perfect, but he holds a special status that makes him the perfect mediator for us. Uh, I read a story that illustrates this. Um, I've I've uh, told this story before, so you may recall it, but when I was looking at my notes, I I didn't remember it, so I figured I would share it again. But uh, I think this is a really great and powerful story that illustrates this dynamic. And the story goes like this. There was once a soldier in the Union Army who lost his older brother and father in the war. He went to Washington, D.C. to see President Abraham Lincoln to ask for an exemption from military service. He wanted to go back and help his sister and mother with the spring planting on the farm. Uh, He went up to the doors of the White House and asked to see the president, and he was told, you can't see the president. Don't you know there's a war going on? The president is a very busy man. Now, go away, son. Get back out there and fight the Rebs like you're supposed to. And he left very disheartened and sat on a park bench not far from the White House. Just then a little boy came up to him and said, soldier, you look unhappy, what's wrong? And the soldier looked at this child and began to spill out his heart about his father and brother having died in the war and how he was the only male left in the family and was needed desperately back at the farm for the spring planting. The little boy took the soldier by the hand, led him around to the back of the White House. They went through the back door, past the guards and the generals and high-ranking government officials until they got to the president's office itself. The boy didn't even knock on the door, just opened the door and walked in, and there was President Lincoln with his secretary of state looking over battle plans on the desk. President Lincoln looked up and said, what can I do for you, Todd? Todd said, Daddy, this soldier needs to talk to you. And right then and there, the soldier had a chance to plead his case to President Lincoln, who then exempted him from military service due to his hardship. Through Jesus, we have such access to the father. The son brings his father's throne and says, Daddy, here's someone who needs to talk to you. Now, if you've seen the movie Lincoln, uh, you know Robert, that, uh, Robert Todd Lincoln was initially uh, prevented from joining the army because his mother told President Lincoln that she could not bear losing another son in the war. And it was a point of tension between uh, Abraham Lincoln and his wife. But eventually, uh, Robert Todd Lincoln joined the Civil War efforts uh, towards the end of the war. And he was, you know, he was put in a position that reduced the likelihood that he would be in combat and therefore reduced the likelihood that he would die in war. And so therefore, being the son of the president, it had its perks for somebody like Robert Todd Lincoln uh, in, turn, in the sense that his father could protect him from uh, you know, dying in this war. But you know what sets Jesus apart uh, from Robert Todd Lincoln as son of the father? Is that God the Father sent Jesus the Son to be on the front lines of this spiritual war, sealing his fate through suffering and death upon the cross. You know, in one sense, Jesus is sent to be in the very, very spot uh, that guarantees his death for the salvation of our souls. Now, just because he was a son, it doesn't mean it was an easy experience for Jesus, right? We see that in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And this reminds me of Jesus' prayer, of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
where he is extremely distressed to the point of, uh, you know, to the point of shedding blood, sweating blood. Uh, he's thinking about what the cross would mean for him as a son. What would the cross mean? It would mean uh, not just physical pain, although a lot of phys physical pain. Uh, it means, uh, you know, not just um, humiliation and shame as he hung naked like a, a common criminal. Of course, it meant that as well. I think what Jesus was probably most afraid of is the prospect that he would, as a son, have to experience the very judgment of his own father, the full wrath of God, the full wrath of God on account of our sin. Uh, in a sense, I think what really shakes Jesus in that moment is the father, whom he had this very close and intimate relationship, would turn his face away from his very own son. Why? So that we might be recipients of the very opposite action, so that through Jesus, the Father might turn his face towards us, and we might be welcomed in. We might be welcomed to this throne of grace. You see, as I'm talking about uh, the gentleness of Jesus and how he openly invites us, sinners, people who struggle, uh, to come to him, uh, of course, I don't want to give the impression again that Jesus is soft on sin because he's not, right? I don't want to. I don't want you to imagine the person who just kind of you know listens and makes no negative evaluation on your sin, uh, as though they have no impact or are irrelevant. Uh, if that was Jesus, then that yeah, that would make him soft on sin. But you see, his gentleness is not a reflection of his softness of sin. His gentleness is a reflection of his grace. Jesus can be gentle and inviting. Not only because he is the great high priest who sympathizes with our weakness and was tempted in every way, yet was without sin, but because he was the son who ultimately suffered and bore our sin as he died upon the cross for us. That is why he can be gentle. That is why he can be open and inviting. That is why he can be eternally patient with a people who uh, mess up over and over and over again. He is the one who had so much love and mercy in his heart for us that he would endure the worst possible thing anyone could endure in all the cosmos. And he wants us to benefit from his sacrifice. He wants us to receive the benefits of that sacrifice. And we only receive those benefits when we're in relationship with him. And it's only when we're in relationship with him or it's only, we can only become uh, in relationship with him when we answer the call of his invitation to come to him, to approach his throne of grace, to receive mercy and grace in our time of need. Jesus is a high priest, the one who sympathizes with our weakness. Jesus is a son. He's a son who suffered and died on our behalf. And now his heart, his very heart towards us is one of gentleness, of lowliness, one that calls us to come to him. So let's come. Let's come to him in our time of need. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, you, um, 
You embody beauty more than that which we can imagine. You embody gentleness uh, to such a degree that we can not even imagine. But God, we ask that you would bridge that gap and you would uh, touch the very seeds of our imagination that we would be able to see you as you are. Uh, so many times what we struggle with is we see you through a particular lens that we create. And oftentimes it's either a half-truth or a distorted truth. But God, what we ask by way of your Holy Spirit and your word that you would reveal to us the fullness of truth. And you would show us the fullness of the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. That you would allow us to see the fullness of his gentleness, the fullness of his love, the fullness of his mercy. And that your beauty would captivate us so much so that you know, we would be drawn to you like a magnet. That we would um, be in a place where we, we can't help but to turn to you, to come to you to answer your call, to answer your invitation, uh, that our hearts would long for you. God, show us this Jesus. Uh, um, help us uh, to come to you in our time of need and to receive mercy and grace. In Jesus' name we pray.